I'm very pleased to uh, welcome Adrian Russ as our next speaker. Um, Adrian's going to be speaking on um, his views on underwriting risk and reinsurance risk management. Um, uh, a quick bio, over the last five years at Suntum, Adrian has lived a tale of two cities. He's based in Cape Town, but especially during quarterly reporting, he comes back to Johannesburg, and apparently this is where the work actually gets done. Um, further to these geographical diversification benefits, Adrian has, as good risk managers do, secured for himself a role that is quite varied. His responsibilities are ERM, and he's an appointed head of risk for a number of Suntum's entities. Uh, model governance and validation, contributing to Suntum's recent approval of its internal model by the PR uh, by the Prudential Authority, which is the first in Africa. Yes. Very cool. Um, Group-wide underwriting reinsurance governance, um, and this is the topic of today's presentation. Prior to Suntum, Adrian's worked at the FSB as well as a consultant across various con co uh, continents, um, and in his actuarial career. Um, I'm, I'm quoting verbatim, his subsequent <laughs> efforts got him as far as being an associate member of the ASA and IFOA, um, and he cherishes this, given its implied tenuous nature. If he had a chance, he'd probably spend his days riding his bike, a sport that he's very passionate about. So definitely might win best bio um, drafting <laughs> skills award of the day, and let me hand over to Adrian. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. I think um, I, I try to bring a bit of humour into the bio, um, often they can be quite dry. Um, and obviously also there was a bit of reference to diversification and, uh, and so on that um, as risk managers we all understand quite well. I think in my career there's at least been a few constants, um, one of which is that I've always worked as a non-life insurance actuary. Um, and I think the, the main reason for that is that even in varsity it already really caught my attention in terms of how complex and vast it is. I mean, I can't say it's as complex as cyber risk, because that's a whole another ball game these days. But, um, but I think if you, if you think of all the, all the um, types of natural and man-made hazards that are out there um, in the everyday life that we live, um, and, and also the global nature of, of short-term insurance, um, if you bring in the reinsurance angle, then there's certainly enough for one lifetime to, uh, to keep your curiosity going. Um, so the objectives of today's presentation is to uh, kind of talk you through at a very high level. I could probably spend all week, um, if we really get into it, um, to discuss the work that I've been doing at Suntime um, as a part of my role uh, to improve the underwriting and the reinsurance risk governance that we've um, uh, set out, and I'll, I'll talk about the reasons for that just now. Um, but really to also give you a, a bit of a sense uh, of how, you know, this being an ERM presentation, how the various risk types come together and how they interact with each other and the relationships between them. Um, I think the, the purpose will also be to do that in the context of Suntum, which um, hopefully most of you are familiar with being South Africa's largest and I think one of the oldest, certainly, uh, if not the oldest insurers. Um, so uh, there's a lot of complexity in the operation that I'll speak about. Obviously, also in actuarial conferences, so th you know th the role of the actuary, and I know there's been a lot of questions about the uh, the prudential standards and what they require of the head of the actuarial function. I actually want to deliberately avoid that question because I don't like answering it, and we can talk about that afterwards. But I, but I will give you an idea of how actuaries can contribute to this um, this area of work, which is very important. 
Um, and yeah, I think uh, give you some practical insights into you know the lessons I've been learning over the last five years through the work, and and touch on really the framework that we've been working uh, to establish at Suntum. So um, obviously risk is a, is a very big topic and um, my talk here today is restricted to, um, to short-term insurers. Um, at, starting at a macro level, and the, the slide is a little bit small, but really um, I think as ERM uh, specialists, we are, I think, quite comfortable with the idea that risks overlap. Um, you know, whatever you decide in terms of your strategy, be it your you know, growth strategy or your investment strategy is in one way or another going to affect the other aspects. So even uh, one of the topics that I think a lot of us spend time on operational risk is kind of really permeating everything um, in, in the whole risk universe. So then maybe homing in today then on the insurance risk, which is what, I've, what I'd like to talk about is what kind of risks are there? And are they all about um, numbers, so claims and premiums? Well, actually, no. And I must be honest, a lot of the really interesting ones are not that, um, that easy to pin down. So, you know, um, if you think about uh, trying to unpack uh, various uh, issues, I think taking a step back to the strategic element, in short-term insurers, specifically in South Africa, we often grapple with uh, good quality data, or you might sit with lines of business that are just not, um, don't lend themselves to being uh, priced using actuarial methods. You know, if you think about, uh, let's take something like a, a liability line of business where each risk is completely in individual. I mean, how do you compare MTN to EOH? Yes, they're both technology businesses, but they're just vastly different. So how do you go about pricing their directors and officers um, uh, 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 policy? And that's where the underwriters have always, in, in the, specifically in the specialist lines of business, had a bit of a, uh, an advantage or a supposed advantage to actuaries. And that's an old debate, which I won't go into now. But, you know, you, you have to, in this kind of work, really come to terms with not being the specialist, not understanding the complexity and the risks that you're trying to address, um, and kind of, you know, become comfortable with placing a lot of dependence on what the underwriters have to tell you and, and very quickly, you know, do these little mini crash courses in understanding the various lines when you, when you, when you need to unpack issues with them. Um, I'll, I'll talk about a few of those um, as I go along, but I've, I've put up there the sort of generic elements of how we look at uh, underwriting risks and, and reinsurance um, to, to maybe talk about underwriting specifically, you know, just in that whole process of assessing risk, like I said, risks that are very complex, um, how do you go about governing or validating whether your underwriters really know what they're doing? Um, and even if they if they do, what do you, how, how do you come to terms with maybe the fact that those guys don't always get the data or the information that they ought to have to assess risk, right? Um, I've spoken a little bit about the challenges of actually modelling all the the risks that we that we underwrite, but then certainly you sit with other pressures. Uh, let's say from a commercial point of view, where um, you know, you've done all your actuarial modeling and it's lovely, but the market's just simply saying to you, no, we, don't, we can find uh, cover cheaper at a million other places, um, specifically in the current context where reinsurance has been very cheap and capital has been, you know, very readily available all over the world. Those things are changing and they do go through cycles. I think from your studies, you'll all be familiar with the insurance cycles. So these things do um, go through ebbs and flows. Um, 
from a product point of view, and I think specifically on the on the niche lines of business, the more specialist things like corporate property and marine, you really got to understand your product um, and also how that product uh, interrelates with the real world out there. So um, when I get to um, my last slide, um, I'll talk about some of the topical issues, but you know, um, the real world is a very dynamic place and the covers that we offer try and manage those risks as best they can. But the terms and conditions become quite critical then in terms of making sure that we do take on risks that we are actually able to, you know, if you think back of the principles of insurance. Um, in terms of reinsurance there, I mean, naturally, and, and, and a lot of it does go back to credit risks. So I, I won't go into that. That's not today's focus. But there are lots of operational risks that you've got to be wary of. So basic things like placing facultative reinsurance on a, on a corporate property policy that has cover of up to six or eight billion rand. I mean, that, if that policy was not reinsured properly, could sink sometime in a heartbeat. Uh, if we don't pay the premium for that fact uh, slip, um, could, could cause major problems. If there's some misunderstanding between an underwriter and the reinsurance department as to what the treaty actually allows, it could bind us on risks that we're just not comfortable with or, um, or inherently don't understand. So uh, there might be some new exclusions that weren't properly communicated. So lots of operational risks also to be aware of. Um, reserving, um, I mean, I think we're all fairly comfortable, I think, with reserving as actuaries, but, you know, it's something a little bit more subtle. So when, when business managers come and go, they like to put their stamp down. So the previous manager, um, you know, would have driven down the reserves as hard as he possibly could to, like, to look good. And then the new guy comes along and says, no, actually, the previous guy didn't know what he was doing. Let's push up the reserves. And so there's a lot of human element as well in, in reserving that you kind of have to watch out for. And as actuaries, you know, obviously being on top of what the data is saying is one thing, but you really also know what's going on in the business is another. Um, I could spend a lot of time talking about claims. I mean, there's claims in various forms in, in non-life insurance. We've got catastrophe claims, we've got large claims, and then we've got the everyday claims that happen every day, like, much like these um, uh, things that we don't really perceive as, uh, as major risks, like maybe a bumper basher, but what if the rent suddenly, you know, goes through the window? Those bumper bashers quickly cost us a lot of money if, if the parts that we need to import um, become overnight a lot more expensive. So, yeah, certainly a very complex uh, a category of risk, and um, for that reason also sometimes, maybe if I can digress a little bit, I uh, took this step more or less 12 years ago when the financial condition reporting was first promulgated by the regulator to uh, embark on a path to develop an internal model for the, the parts of insurance risk or underwriting risk that can be quantified. Um, I think a lot of what I'm talking about today is the, almost the unquantified risks, but certainly those are also worth mentioning. So, I mean, just to give you a quick sense of Suntime, I mean, it's, it's, it's really... I mean, we are a pipsqueak company compared to the rest of the world. I mean, we're tiny. If you, if you start sizing up how big some of those uh, uh, insurers out there are, the alliances, the scores, the, um, the, the, the generalis and, and so on, and yet we are incredibly complex. Yes, we are South Africa, and, and through some recent acquisitions with Sunlam, we've, we've become the largest, I think, financial services group or insurance group in Africa. Um, but uh, despite the scale, we are incredibly complex, and I think it's a great learning 
school for any actor who is interested in, in non-life insurance to really get to understand the different lines of business that we do and the different channels that we do it through. You can literally find combinations of each of those two factors alone at Suntime. Um, we've, we've embarked on a journey to diversify our risk pool across uh, various regions. Um, that's something which we've um, almost had to do because South Africa is also only so big. Excuse me, and we and we do have a dominant market share, which becomes increasingly difficult to actually expand on. So, because of that, um, you, you from a from an insurance point of view, you're starting to move into territories which you got to ask yourself: Are you really the expert um, to underwrite a Samsung cell phone factory out in um, Korea? You know, do, are the risks really the same? Um, are there maybe tricks that those guys can play on you when they provide you with information that you haven't thought of? You know, so, um, and and then obviously also, um, you know, growing places strain on on the resources that are you know uh, yeah, comfortable with the with the things they do in uh, thanks, Ron, in South Africa. So you know you got guys flying all around Africa, all around the southeast. Um, you know they get tired. So do they always make the best decisions? You know there, there are lots of human elements that you can that you can unpack. I think just from a sort of a operational point of view, also perhaps highlight how complex it is. If you think about Suntum, you probably just think of one yellow umbrella, but there are actually lots of brands under that umbrella. Um, we, if I if I move on to uh, my next slide, you need to then also very quickly discern what is important, what is material, and how do you go about doing that when there aren't always numbers to back up your judgment? You know, so um, data is, uh, and when I say data, I'm not saying uh, the sort of data that you'd use for reserving where it's quite well established or even for our internal model that data is of a very good quality. Certainly wouldn't have been uh, possible for us to have our internal model approved if, if, if the data wasn't of a, of a superior quality. But the type of data I'm talking about is at a much more granular level, you know, at a policy level, at a portfolio level, um, and, and also the sort of information that the underwriters, you know, store away in, in their handwritten files or in their survey reports that are not structured, they're not captured on, um, on data bases that we are so familiar with. Uh, Analyzing. I've spoken about the complexity and, and the change that keeps happening in our environment and a little bit about the interconnectedness of the risk. All of those factors make it quite challenging to, uh, from one quarter to the next, decide what's the most important thing to speak to your next risk committee about. You know, uh, there's always an endless uh, choice of interesting topics, but which of those are actually going to move the needle? So. Um, I think specifically, you know, coming from a group uh, risk function point of view, it's very important to be in touch with your um, with your underwriters, and that's why I do spend so much time up here in Joburg because unfortunately they they do sit uh, mostly here, um, and 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 really um, keep in touch with them. You know, it's, you can't perform this sort of job from a from a desk back in Cape Town. You got to. Um, uh, pay your dues by visiting people and talking to them and keeping in touch and also managing the personalities which is actuaries we're not always uh, you know that comfortable with um, so I think you know I've probably uh, hopefully not as much as the cyber guys but giving you a sense of you know how overwhelming it can be to 
to govern an organization as, com as complex as Suntum and certainly just the insurance risk, which, yes, is core to our strategy and to our business. But, you know, it's not like we've, we've made it to 100 years without doing anything right. So there are lots of good things that we, that we have been doing for many years and that have developed over time. Um, you know, the basics like having a proper board delegation of authority in place, which sets out, you know, what kind of claims can our CEO Lizay authorize, which of those need to go to the board, um, all the way down to um, Philippa sitting in the room, what kind of policy can she um, uh, bind us to as our new head of commercial underwriting. So, so it's very important to cascade that down. You know, you get lots of new guys coming into the underwriting field that don't really understand the risks and they need to kind of prove their worth. It's a little bit like a share trader has to kind of show that they know and understand the, the risks that they take on. Um, the capital and the reinsurance management obviously plays a very important role because you can't be doing this for the love of it. You know, you do it uh, and it has to make financial sense, not just because we want to make profit, but because we do run a, a very complex, uh, I don't want to call it a casino, but you know, that's the best way of <laughs> comparing it. There are lots of bets that we take and we need to make sure that the, the casino can honor those uh, bonuses or those 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 uh, winnings that the, or the, the claims that the clients, you know, um, are, um, are, are entitled to, to receive from us. So um, that, that then ties in very uh, uh, neatly with uh, how you go about quantifying your risk appetite, you know. So there are various ways. And um, I think we've, we've certainly, um, I don't just say this to sound nice, but it, I think we've, Risk appetite is probably the one word that you hear at Suntum the most, at least in the area of work that I do. So you, on a constant basis, are talking to people about what can we take on, what can't we, you know, what, what makes sense, what doesn't. And it's hard to get it right, because if, if I can quickly illustrate the point to you, um, if you consider a, a motor policy that's maybe at worst a million rand, you know, a company with... Uh, five billion rands worth of capital can take on those risks very readily and it's, it's not an issue but what about if a policy like a corporate risk um, is a has, has an exposure of let's say a billion rand after we've reinsured away the parts that we uh, don't want is that billion rand the same thing if it attaches from an excess point of let's say 20 million that the client stands in for versus a billion rand that sits in an excess layer far up in the clouds, you know, where other insurers are co-insuring, or not co-insuring, but reinsuring the, the primary layers that you then only take part in either as a share or, uh, you know, as an, as an excess layer. So risk appetite is quite complex to define just at a per risk level. Um, in terms of exposure to uh, risk aggregation, and I'm going to speak a little bit about those later, but I think in terms of um, the various things that can stack up, uh, defining your, your aggregate risk appetite is also quite an ongoing discussion. Um, perhaps not as directly relevant, but you know, certainly through the business planning and strategizing that we do, there's, there's a lot of thinking and, and thought that goes into what the business can take on from a risk point of view. So then you'd ask, well, if you've already done all of that, why would you want to improve? Why is there a need to, you know, take it to the next level? Well, I think um, I haven't spoken to all the detail, but a lot of our business is actually outsourced. In fact, I think it's probably at least 50% of our business comes from channels or 
um, subsidiaries or UMAs that don't sit at our head office. You know, they spread all across the Lovo and Fourways and you know the rest of Joburg, um, and um, and so the, we don't have direct control over them as one would um, with underwriters that sit at head office or in your branches. So there's a lot of um, there's a need to really understand those uh, activities that the underwriters um, perform. And I've spoken about the growth outside of South Africa. That adds naturally a lot of additional risk and complexity. Um, there've been there've been a couple of uh, uh, losses or events that have that have made us to also, you know, it's not fundamental stuff that that'll cause Santam to to fail uh, from an underwriting point of view. You know, those sort of risks we understand relatively well, or as well as we can. You know, earthquake risk is our main solvency risk um, from an underwriting point of view and we can reinsure against it and we've got a model to uh, try and quantify that as best as is possible but nevertheless you know on a more uh, lower return period basis there, there's lots of things if you think about listeriosis that cost us a couple of hundred million rand if you think about Neisner a billion and a half odd obviously the reinsurers had to pay their share um, but uh, there are lots of things. The Grayson Bridge caused, I think, as many as four of our business units that operate completely independently to have to pay. Um, liability, engineering, property, the reinsurance, Santa Maria to pay. So one incident can actually cause a lot of things to, uh, or cause a lot of claims to have to be paid. I've spoken about the reserve risk that you need to always keep an eye on, specifically on the reinsurance and the liability lines. But then also the operational incidents. I think given the fact that underwriting is such a human-driven um, activity, you got to really understand how much scope there is for things to go wrong. Where you'll pick it up in your claims, but it's actually an operational process or control that failed. So what we've done is to, first of all, and I think obviously the regulatory changes were the impetus for us to formalize a lot of these things, but certainly not the only reason why we did it. So in terms of uh, our underwriting and our reinsurance policies, we've got group policies, which we cascade down into our uh, subsidiaries. So um, uh, the likes of Anton and our other colleagues at Centrique have to, to a large extent, adopt what we as a group have defined as you know, the risk limits, or at least with, operate within those. Um, excuse me, we set out the roles and responsibilities um, and the key controls and the minimum standards, which then at a business unit level need to be articulated more clearly. So effectively, we've got, I think, approximately 20 different business units. So I'm not talking about licenses or UMAs. I'm talking about business units that operate uh, in various lines of business in various territories. So each of those needs to have a very clear understanding of what we are actually allowing them to do. We're not telling them how to do it. That's also where we rely on them. They're the specialists, but they do need to understand what we are comfortable with them doing. A lot of that does get dictated from what the reinsurance treaties um, provide and, and allow. Um, but there are then also the cases, always the, the need to be nimble and innovative. And then there needs to be clear rules around how do you deviate from what the mandate is. And, um, and don't take that for granted. You know, people don't typically come uh, to group in Belleville and ask you if they want to, you know, do something slightly differently. They get on with it and then like ask you for permission or apologies <laughs> a year or two later when the claims have happened. So, um, 
I've spoken about the risk appetite limits and um, and, and, and I think that's very well embedded. We've, we've certainly put a lot of effort into making sure that they are uh, well understood. But, you know, again, coming back to the complexity, the underwriters get on with their day jobs. They make decisions. They rely on the information that's available to them. But they don't always document how, um, how they do it and what their guidelines are. To a certain extent, it's because it's uh, constantly changing, so it's difficult to keep a... Uh, you know, a, a, a guideline alive. Um, but nevertheless, you know, when we, from a risk or an audit point of view, come and, and have discussions with them, we do need to kind of know what it is that they um, do and don't allow within their mandate. So that's a, 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 an aspect that we've been driving quite hard. Um, I hope this is all legible, but essentially another area which I think has... It's an, I've said it's an enhancement, but it's something which has actually grown quite uh, in, uh, or, or organically or it's evolved quite naturally that um, we have actuarial involvement and actuarial functions actually permeating right throughout our, our operation. So on our board, we've got, uh, we've got actuaries, uh, independent actuaries. Uh, in fact, I think Timber used to sit on our board. Um, our CEO happens to be an actuary. Um, in our business units, we've got actuaries, um, you know, doing support functions, but also uh, running some of those. Um, our our um, new chief risk officer and um, our chief underwriting officer are both actuaries. And within the functions that they fulfil, there are actuaries really throughout it, throughout the whole um, the whole structure. So I think that that does demonstrate that. You know, to give comfort to the board um, that your reinsurance, your underwriting policies are appropriate can, cannot really just sit on one person. Uh, so I'm taking a bit of a contrarian view here on what maybe the regulations require, but you know, it's it's a lot it's a lot more complex than than just one person giving an opinion. Um, so I think appreciate also then how much how much collaboration is needed. So. As an example, and I'll try and get this laser pointer to work, but we've got we've got an actuary who does claims fraud modelling, you know, you know, using predictive methods, who has to work quite closely with our fraud and forensics team, who do a lot more of the qualitative work. Um, in terms of the work that our FRM, our financial risk management department, does with the models, they need to also rely on the reinsurance department. Um, and and Santa Marie, when they look at modelling the, the the risks that 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 business unit takes on, um, in terms of the work that I do, I, I work for the chief risk officer, but I have to you know be quite close to the chief underwriting officer uh, in terms of uh, what 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 takes place in all of the various functions. Ron, um, I've got two slides left, so I'll try and speed it up a bit. Um, yeah, I, in fact, I think this is pretty much the last one. So I think what this all has culminated in is what we've called the Group Underwriting and Reinsurance Risk Forum, which is a collection of uh, actuaries, underwriters, and business functions such as audits and risk that come together currently on a quarterly basis. Um, we're still finding our feet in terms of what the best approach is to, to, to be effective. But um, we're trying to, through the various work streams that we've got, drive you know the things that need to happen at a high level the governance the policies and the practices that need to be put in place uh, discussing what risk appetite means and and whether changes are needed 
Uh, to be clear, the, the forum doesn't make any decisions. So the forum won't suddenly say, okay, we can write risks up to 200 million per risk or you know, accept uh, catastrophes of up to 500 million. It's mainly an advisory or a discussion type forum that then feeds into the various decision-making channels um, that go all the way to the board and the risk committee. Um, I've, and, and I think maybe this is also something to maybe focus on then is there's a lot of topical issues that we've focused on um, specifically, you know, also in kind of finding our feet in terms of getting everyone together. So there's been a lot of discussion happening around silent cyber and what that means for our policies, our conventional policies that don't necessarily intend to cover the types of risks that um, the previous uh, speakers uh, spoke to when those sort of events affect our clients and lead to property or liability losses. Um, the water crisis certainly kept us very busy because it made everyone quite anxious as to what it, would, what, what it might mean for firefighting. And our firefighting is also another topic where supposedly um, you know, the municipalities don't all have um, the capacity. Uh, if you look at what happened in St. Francis, you, know, you sometimes find that the firefighters are just too far away. Um, so there's lots of things. Some of the sectors like construction and mining are really bleeding or, or, or have bled out. So that has had some real implications for us in terms of both being able to grow the business, but also you know, what kind of claims we then see uh, flowing out of those sectors. Um, we try and coordinate the assurance work, so I think the, one of the later speakers will speak about combined assurance. I've steered clear of that a little bit, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of need to kind of collaborate and, and make sure that audits and risk and business haven't placed the right controls and, and don't uh, duplicate one another, and that also the right skills and experience and expertise and capacity can be managed. You know, I certainly don't know everything about um, a facultative reinsurance process, but my audit colleagues have done a lot of work on that, so they'd, they'd be better placed to go and look at that, um, and so forth. Something which is still quite new, um, but we are also uh, driving that through our ongoing um, uh, efforts to uh, collect better underwriting data through the exposure management stream is to also then inform management action. So, um, we've got a couple of um, uh, segments of business that we're revisiting where, where it's a line or a type of peril that runs across numerous business units that we need to then analyze and, and get everyone's input to, to hopefully then also make sure that there's a consistent approach and, and that um, all the business units are operating on a level playing field. I've uh, exhausted my time, so I'm going to hand back to Ronald. Um, but, but thank you very much for, for, for listening, and I hope that's been useful. So, so we have time for um, one or two questions from the audience for Adrian. So, so who'd like to, to ask something? Thanks, Adrian. I'm not sure if this is relevant, because I'm coming at it from a life perspective. Okay. Um, and also where you operate on the African continent. But some countries have compulsory sessions for reinsurance. And I'm quite interested to know whether that's an issue, how you deal with it, do you manage the risk around it, uh, just, just your general approach. No, very good question and, and I want to almost expand on it slightly to say that compulsory session is one of those where you where you kind of forced to do business a certain way in Africa. Others are 
which is something we're currently grappling with is writing business that's sanctioned or where asbestos is kind of still accepted. So you'd think that a lot of those things are sorted out already, but they actually aren't. But no, uh, uh, compulsory sessions are very much a reality, even in a country like Namibia, where it's been a real burning point for the for the finance ministry and for the NAMABRI, which is their national um, uh, reinsurance business. Quite bizarrely, oftentimes those risks get circulated back or out of that country. So oftentimes we find that NAMABRI, for instance, would take a compulsory session and then reinsure it back to our com uh, competitors in South Africa, which almost defeats the point a little bit. But no, that is something which does uh, uh, take up a lot of time in the business uh, you know, to, to devise ways of, 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 of keeping the regulators and the, and the governments happy, but, but still operationally being able to get on with things. Certainly there's also a lot of credit risk that goes with that then. Yeah. One more for Adrian. Scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Um, <laughs> Ron, un underwriters are wonderful people, I'm sure, but like actuaries, they, they, they perhaps run the risk of being confused by their own brilliance um, or, 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 um, or, or forget to question the models that they're using. Sure. What do you do when you're sincerely not convinced that they understand the risks that they are uh, assessing? On. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's a very good question, and I, 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 when I find the time one day, I could probably write a few books about my dealings with handwriters over the last five years. Uh, it certainly uh, does test your interpersonal <laughs> skills on a whole another level. Um, but but to kind of come to the heart of it, I mean, it is a very challenging job to stay abreast of what the um, what the real risks are, specifically because even as an actuary, if you don't, if data doesn't actually exist, how do you then invalidate what an underwriter is telling you? Um, but having said that, I think uh, the 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 need to have those regular discussions and almost get to a point where the underwriter gets on your side, so to, so as not to. I mean, it has to be a healthy debate, but to not try and be confrontational in your approach, you know, kind of accept that you don't know everything about their line of business, but then start a conversation where healthy debates, that's what I like to do is to just cultivate a healthy debate with the underwriters where you can throw around ideas and help them challenge their thinking, but then also um, uh, get cooperation from them, whether it be something as simple as sharing data with you or, or, or being willing to cooperate in a, in a study that you're busy doing. Okay, Adrian, thank you so much. Cool. Um, here's a small token from the Actuarial Society. Thank you.